this morning, the plan is to talk a little bit more about teens and children and dealing with these issues of gender confusion. That's that's what this term incongruity is meant to uh, describe. Like there's the, the formal diagnosis of dysphoria. Uh, incongruity are those people who wouldn't describe themselves here. Uh, and kids... Uh, th- there seems to be this new kind of fad among <clears throat> teens in, in junior high and high school of uh, becoming non-gender or gender neutral. So w- we'll talk about that. Um, I also I want to say up front, too, I found this book personally very helpful. Uh, Mark Yarhouse, uh, he's a, a Christian psychiatrist, or trained in Christian psychology and psychiatry. He uh, teaches out at Virginia. Uh, he's did his doctoral work at Wheaton College, and he's writing from a Christian perspective. It's called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. It, it, it's, it'll be footnoted in your notes, in your handout, like the full information. And if you're, if you're curious, too, I have, about, I have about 10 copies of a one-page review I wrote for this book for uh, Ethics and Medicine. So if, if you are kind of want a higher-level overview of what that book is about, um, you can uh, take these, and if we don't have enough, I can easily send people uh, copies of this. Uh, it will give you a better feel for what, what the book is about. Um, I'm probably forgetting something else, but I, I can't think of it now, other than I'm going to pray, and then, and then we'll start. Uh, gracious God, we thank you for the gift of another day. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the salvation we have through him. We ask that you would uh, continue to give us wisdom and guidance and patience and grace to think through these complicated issues of gender, and uh, may everything that is said here be pleasing to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Welcome. No worries. Uh, in in the book that Yarhouse wrote, he uh, starts with a couple of cases. Uh, a boy by the name of Ted, which is some pseudonym, is age seven. And uh, Yarhouse talks about uh, the mother who had come into his office asking, what can we do? Uh, this, this boy is seven, and she is increasingly concerned about his behavior and she made a comment about how some other mother at a park said some um, fantastic things about her son. And she said, how, how could this mom have the nerve to make this comment about my boy? And she started to uh, express concerns about how her seven-year-old would eventually be treated in school. She went on to describe her son's effeminate behavior and mannerisms. He, he talked more like a girl. Uh, he also pretended to have long hair, like his mother. Um, this past weekend, she said he grabbed a towel and put it around his waist, saying, look, Mom, I'm wearing a dress just like you. And he would frequently put on high-heeled shoes and walk around the room. Um, so she finished with this question, what should I do? Um, that's a weighty question, uh, a weighty question indeed. Then there's Aiden, who is 16 years old. He first came into Yar House's office. 
at that age. He's biologically a male, but his parents had brought him in for a consultation because recently he had insisted that he's been a female for the last year and a half. Uh, And Aiden shared that he would like to transition, but his parents said, well, he said, actually, he said, no one believes me that I want to transition. And so Yarhouse asked him, "Who, who do you mean by no one? And he said, well, primarily my parents, who, when he confided in them, they said, this is nonsense. You were born a boy. There's, you know, there's, it's quite clear. So let's, let's go have you see a therapist. Um, the kids at school sometimes tease him about his outfits, though no one at school knows. But he's been wearing, like, dark, kind of monochromatic colors, like very dark and foreboding. And sometimes he gets made fun of, you know, dressing in this way. But no one knows about any of this cross-gender identification. So here are two cases that we're finding in today's culture. They're, they're quite common. Um, if you're the parents in one of these situations, I, I can only imagine that that would be deeply disconcerting and um, troubling and horrifying. Like, w- what is going on with my child or... My, my teenager. So for the rest of this morning, I know it's going to be brief, I'm, what, what we're going to do is uh, I, I want to reframe some of these issues uh, along the lines of how Yarhouse has discussed them because I think they're very helpful. And we, we do have some data, some statistics on teens and children and expressing cross-gender behaviors. What, what, are, the, what are the potential causes? What are the outcomes? What can we do? We'll have some high-level directives. If you want something more specific, your house would be, again, a great, a great resource for you. Um, but qu- quickly, I wanted to just review uh, a, a couple of things from last week, whether or not you made it. Uh, transgender is this term we use just for an umbrella term to cover a whole bunch of behaviors, any, anything from cross-dressing to a formal diagnosis of dysphoria to teens who just feel like they don't want to be either, and they've kind of had enough of gender roles. So that's, um, that's, that's the broad term. American Psychological Association defines gender identity like your sense of maleness or femaleness, whether you're a boy or a girl. Um, that sense of your identity can be uh, anything from the opposite gender to something in between, or a blend, or neither or uh, as I mentioned last week, you could be two-spirit, which finds, um, actually finds its origins in the Native American community. So it's intelligible to them. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure for, for many of us. But notice here again the language, because gender identity is, in, is internal, a person's gender identity is not necessarily visible to, to others. Uh, no one is disputing that um, you can have a whole bunch of different attitudes about your physiological biology that's been given by God. Um, whether or not that constitutes the true you is the bigger philosophical question that's been being pushed in our culture, this kind of idealist mindset that it's what's inside that counts, and if it's really what's inside that counts, then you should be able to do, uh, do with, your, with your body whatever you want, change it, alter it, so that the external matches the internal. And uh, I'll say this repeatedly again this morning, that 
the, the overall bent of um, psychiatry and psychology right now, at least in the secular world, is to take these claims seriously and to not challenge uh, even a teenager's sense of his or her gender identity. Um, okay, so uh, we'll, we'll get these out of the way. Technically, there is a formal diagnosis. It's now gender dysphoria. In the older uh, APA guidelines, it was gender identity disorder. Uh, recall that they've changed the, the language to reflect kind of like the existential um, angst associated with this condition. So the term uh, disorder has been jettisoned because it's thought to be too laden with moral baggage and we don't want to judge, judge people. So this is right out of uh, the, the, yeah, version five from the American Psychiatric Association. Sorry, I confused that with the Psychological Association. Um, these are these I've lifted straight from uh, straight from Yar House, and I, I probably should have put these up last week because I think they're helpful. Um, just so we can recognize that there are three three legitimate facets to to being a human being. There's uh, the biological sex, how how we were born, what God has given us, um, how God has made us, male, female. That's pretty straightforward. Yes, we do have an identity. We have some kind of concept of who we are as men and women. Um, so that language uh, he uses, man and, and woman, and then we have gender roles as well, which he describes as masculine and feminine. Um, this, this one's probably more helpful, where he talks about the possibilities on three different uh, levels, if you will, for, um, for being outside this binary of male and female. So physiologically, there, there's a rather rare condition of babies born with uh, an intersex condition. This, there's several uh, terms for this. There's several conditions, actually. I can't remember the particular names, or if I tried to pronounce them, they would go horribly wrong. And I'm aware that Carl is in here, and so um, whatever. But, um, uh, but it is, it's very possible for uh, some babies to be born um, at, with ambiguities um, due to uh, issues that went on during formation in the womb. So that is a physiological possibility. And we, we pointed out last week, too, that if, um, if a child is born here and it's not clear, probably the worst thing parents can do is to try to resolve that ambiguity before the child has any sense of who that child is. So... Um, Yes, we, we, want to, we want to say that the body matters, uh, but that doesn't mean that we discard our sense of who we are. So there's numerous cases out there of children who have a crisis later in life only to find out that they were born with uh, ambiguities physiologically and their parents tried to, well, they assigned the gender or the, the sex of the child um, before this child had any sense of who he or she was and then they find this crisis in life that I feel like I'm in the wrong body. Um, something to avoid. Uh, we do have a gender identity here. Uh, Yarhaus just uses the term androgyny, which means it, it's a spectrum, right? Um, some, uh, well, I think that's, that's fairly clear. If you want to be gender neutral, you would put yourself somewhere in the middle. Um, if you're biologically a male, but you tend to identify or you feel is more of a female, then you would be further on either side of that spectrum. And then there's also the roles that we play in culture that, that uh, shift from masculine to feminine. They're culturally informed. They, they are not consistent. 
throughout various cultures of the world, like the National Geographic issue that came out last year was very intent on pointing out that in some cultures, what we would consider um, quite effeminate is in other cultures something that men would do. So um, th that's a valid point. Some of those things are indeed uh, true. We live in a, a wonderfully complex <coughs> and diverse world, uh, but that's different than, again, um, one sense of I uh, identity, but they're all related. Um, so if, if that's helpful, great. Uh, there are distinctions that we would want to keep in mind when we discuss this. Um, causes, briefly, again from last week, we really don't know. Um, there are theories out there um, concerning, uh, they're called brain sex theories, which, which have to do to fetal development of the brains, and there's speculation that there may be some abnormalities that occur in some children, which could be part of a physiological cause for what we now know as dysphoria. In other cases, though, uh, it's, it's disputed. It, no one agrees on that entirely. Others would say this could be a, well, in, it could be influenced by psychosocial factors. I think that's probably a component, too. Some kids have had horrible childhoods, and by the time they're adolescence, um, they've been so messed with, they don't know uh, up from down anymore. And that could be uh, a huge reason for why they may want to identify or do identify with um, the opposite biological gender. Um, I suspect, I'm, this is, it's kind of depressing, but I suspect we'll probably never know the causes of this. Um, although I think we'll continue to have a, a proliferation of, of new theories as science continues to probe deeper into who we are as human beings. Um, that's just my pure speculation. Um, here, finally, some statistics, and I've lifted these from uh, Yarhouse and from other uh, journals. Um, when we're talking about children, um, the first one ought to set our minds at ease to some degree. This desire to be the opposite gender is not all that uncommon, especially among children, and in a vast majority of cases, it is short-lived. Um, however, these are the persistence rates, and I'm sorry for the small font again, um, and notice how wide the ranges are here. Persistence <coughs> rate, which would mean someone who had, yes? Well, I just wanted to clarify what age range these um, Yes, I don't know. Um, I think Less it's... Than 12. Yes, I think so. Um, that would that be a good question. Uh, I'd have to look at the data. Um, that's yeah. I, I wish I, I wish I knew. Um, uh, no, in fact, the, the data on teens is uh, horribly inconsistent, and there's actually not much data. Right, it's being collected now, but there's not much to go on. Um, but it, uh, I'll have to look for that. It, your house may have, uh, or the, the particular study. It probably has a range, and I just I missed it or forgot it. Um, but uh, the persistence rate varies widely from 2 to 30% for males based on a collection of these studies and between 12 and 50% for females. Um, and then there's, there's, this, uh, there's this connection here. Um, I talked about that briefly last week too. The, a significant percentage of those who experience some of these uh, feelings of incongruence or dysphoria uh, a significant percentage is tied to um, homosexual or bisexual behavior. So uh, last week I had the, the, uh, the blog post from Max Robinson, this woman who transitioned to a man and re realized she wrecked her body and it didn't abate the feelings of dysphoria. She went back to being a woman, but she finally had time to 
process and reflect on what she had done. And her reasoning was that she had um, hated her body and they were due to like suppressing these same-sex attraction, these, these feelings of being a lesbian. So she's now embraced that identity um, because she realized the transgender option was not what, um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't helping her. So that would be one example of someone who had expressed dysphoric feelings or gender dysphoria, but at its root was something connected to same-sex behavior or desires. Um, I, I think culturally, too, it seems to me that um, broadly, those who are wanting to deconstruct this concept of gender are very suspicious or uh, they're, to put it another way, they're anxious, they're anxious to keep these two separate. Um, they don't like, they don't like uh, the, the combination of the two or they, uh, they think people, um, they think that critics too often just connect dysphoria with, with gay. And insofar as that is still kind of a pejorative term in our culture, there's this desire to, <clears throat> to keep those two separate, though there does seem to be some link in the data. Um, I, I also mentioned last week an article I want to talk about a little bit more here by uh, Lisa Macariano. It's called, it's entitled Outbreak, like the full statistics are in your notes. And if you, if you want the entire article, just you can email me and I can send you the PDF. Um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. She, um, she's not a Christian author, um, but she is trained in psychology and she's an expert in the, the uh, analytical psychology of Carl Jung, for whatever that's worth. But um, she's, she's identified what she's noticed in the data as uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, this new wave of teenagers just out of the blue saying, oh, I'm not either male or female. And um, without any kind of prior uh, diagnosis of depression or anxiety or uh, any other kind of uh, isolation or trauma, etc. And she said she stumbled on a case a few years ago. She was reading how parents were coming to the aid of their daughter who identified as a boy or a man, and she was heartened to hear how her parents were coming to support her. She said, but then she went on to say, my illusions were shattered when they helped facilitate her getting a double mastectomy at age 14. And she said that she said that all of my all of my illusions just went out the window because that um, that's deeply troubling. Um, so she's yeah, she's a licensed clinical social worker as well, but she has noticed in the last five years of these uh, increasing number of teens identifying as gender neutral or as the other gender, the opposite gender, there is an alarming disproportion or an, an alarming increase in females over males identifying as the opposite gender or gender neutral. What little data in history we have, it's typically been the other way, that there are more men or more adult men who identify as women than vice versa. But in our schools and among teenagers, teenage girls are five times more likely to identify as neutral or the opposite gender as are boys. And she, um, she suspects that in some ways this is a new way for teen girls to express feelings of, of discomfort over their own bodies. 
And, and there are some alarming statistics about teenage girls and their perceptions of their bodies that I think makes it clear that their, their template or the archetype is the impossibly skinny, highly airbrushed supermodel that's displayed in magazines, etc. Um, there are impossible ideals, there are unrealistic ideals, but they seem to have a profoundly negative effect on, on all our kids, but on girls especially. So she looked at all this data, and she, she noticed that among this, this like sudden onset rapid occurrence, she found, she found two things that she says she can correlate to, to, to these occurrences. Now, again, correlation doesn't, ever, doesn't necessarily imply causality, but it is what, what she's saying is that what I'm finding in all these cases, I'm seeing a prevalence of these two things. The first one is um, social media use which um, I, I'd like to see the percentage of like, teenage girls who are not on social media. Um, I suspect it's under 1%. Um, but in, in particular, um, YouTube has uh, engendered a whole community of teenagers uh, where they find love and acceptance uh, for altering their bodies the way they see fit. Um, she said, you can find thousands of homemade videos on YouTube where teens are showing off their scarred chests, where they're injecting testosterone, and the vast majority of these kids, well, the vast majority are under 25, which makes sense if they're teens. Um, so she said there is an incredibly positive, affirming <coughs> presence or culture on the internet, and that climate um, has a deep impact on our kids, especially when they may go to school and be made fun of, or if they perceive that their parents would be horrified if they knew what was really going on. So these are just a few um, quips that she called from the internet. Uh, can't believe how far you've come. You are amazing in every way. Uh, and these are people who are mutilating their bodies. Um, so proud and happy for you. You are totally rad. By the way, you are totally attractive. Um, so, so there's this, this strong climate of affirmation. Uh, the, the second correlation there is having a friend who identifies as trans or who is being deliberately gender uh, amorphous or gender neutral. Uh, this, is, this quote here is taken from uh, parent comments on a blog entitled Fourth Wave Now. Um, and this parent says, we are a progressive family caught in the teenage transgender wave. It's so scary, I can't even put it into words. What we are seeing are pockets of teens in different towns who are declaring themselves either non-binary or transgender. In many cases, these are teens who showed no gender variance at all, and then they get connected with a group in their high school, and suddenly a large percentage of them are identifying in this way. Um, the upside of this is that this language kind of sounds like what we all went through as teenagers, and that is joining some type of crazy fad. Whether that means like purple hair, or like when I was a kid, like in high school, you know, if you got like a rat tail cut into the back of your, um, you know, in the, into the back of your hair, that was like, my parents hated that. Um, now, it, it could very well be that this is just the latest... Um, for many people, it's just the latest craze. Like, don't, if you think about being a teenager again, I know it's hard 
sometimes to, to, to try to work our way back into that world. But just when you feel like everyone's telling you what to do and how to do it and you have cultural pressures everywhere, how freeing it might be or how it taps into that natural rebellion that we all have to just want to say, look, screw it. I'm not, you can't tell me to be male or female. I'm going to dress how I want to dress. Um, I, I think that's some of it, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think there are other kids who are, are really fighting something, uh, and, and it's hard to know what's really going on, which is why we need, to, um, we, need, we need to be gentle, we need to be gracious, and um, part of what I'll say later, I'll say it now, is that if you have teens who have friends who are deliberately identifying as trans, um, I think the worst thing you could do is push them away or uh, try to tell your kid not to be friends with them. Because if my parents told me not to be friends with somebody, well, I would, I would do precisely the opposite because I'm a teenager and I know better, right? Um, but who will be the, the, the dissenting voice, if not the parent? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not saying we can't dissent. I'll, I'll come back to that. That's a totally fair question. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, Marciano is, uh, again, alarmed. And, and what she noted in her article um, is, again, how quickly um, parents who take their teens to psychologists are being encouraged to listen to their teens and not challenge them at all. So no voices of dissent. And then, and then to, if necessary, start the hormonal process when they're old enough and eventually leading toward toward surgery. And this is, this is right out of her article, Outbreak. Um, therapists are contributing, notice that language, are contributing to the rise in transitioning quickly by validating a young person's self-diagnosis as transgender without careful differential diagnosis, exploration of trauma, questions about sexual orientation, etc. In other words, when a young person self-diagnoses as transgender and presents to a gender therapist, the gender therapist is likely to affirm rather than explore in an open-ended fashion. So this is my, uh, my, my call again to if you, if you find yourselves looking for a therapist, uh, by all means look for a, look for a Christian therapist here. Otherwise, um, you will be, uh, you will, <laughs> you're almost painted, if you're troubled by this, you're almost painted as an adversary among the professional community. And I, I have a whole, I have two pages full of texts from parents who said they were chastised by the medical professional for challenging their children's identity and introducing more stress into their lives. And they said, well, wait a minute, who's, who's the parent? Who's in charge here? Well, it seems to me the kids are in charge here. Um, and, and that's alarming. And, and it's, it seems to be uh, rather systemic. Um, so, uh, oh, we're doing okay, okay. A spectrum of responses. Uh, this, again, I want to step back a minute, and um, this is uh, my kind of summary of your house's work. And if it's helpful, great. If it's not, um, my, my apologies. And uh, I, you know, sometimes I have a thing for alliteration because it can be helpful. But there are, there are a variety of responses to this, and we, and we need to be aware of them and, and what are driving them. And, and clearly, this notion of celebration is one that is uh, a palpable element in our culture. In other words, we celebrate indeterminacy, we celebrate freedom to identify any way we want, we celebrate diversity, um, we 
we look for the day when we can celebrate the downfall of this oppressive, culturally prescribed gender roles that are often dominated by men, etc. Um, this, again, is informed by a, a philosophy that says it's the true self, that, you know, the inner self that is the real self. And so the reality for our kids is that if they're struggling with this, they are often presented with overwhelming messages of affirmation by an element of our culture. That's not the whole story. Um, but there are individuals who are writing books now, and if you go to Amazon, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's self-published by people who want to affirm and deconstruct gender. Um, that it's mainly self-published ought to be a red flag. Um, uh, but there's one that's not self-published, and this guy gets a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, attention. Here's a, a guide to gender, um, a social justice advocate's handbook. It's now in its second edition. You can see a gingerbread person, not a gingerbread man, but he uses that to, uh, well, he, here's, here's what he wants to do, breaking through the binary of male and female, wants to move from a traditional incomplete understanding of gender to an inclusive, cognitively complex understanding of gender diversity. Um, it sounds a bit like a mess to me, but that's, um, that's, what, he, uh, that's what he's aiming to do. Um, I don't want to give him any more time, but if you, that's, that's, one, that's one cultural strand that our, that, uh, our kids are being influenced by. Uh, we also have, uh, however, those who are um, facing consternation, this deep internal stress over what they perceive as an incongruity between their sense of who they are and how God has made them. Um, these individuals um, seek some relief through psychotherapy, psychiatry, or in some instances, hormonal therapy or surgery. Uh, and then we have also uh, the, the voices that are perceived of condemnation. Now, I, don't, I think it's more than just perceived. I do think um, we do have uh, a strong uh, Christian voice culturally that um, comes out quite strongly against this, who tend to see transgenderism or gender dysphoria as just another instance of, of willful rebellion against God's clearly created order and plan. Um, you, you know, everybody's just re re rebellious. Um, something like this often happens. Since cross-dressing is prohibited in the Bible, Deuteronomy 22.5, uh, any attempt to live as the opposite sex is, uh, is condemned. Um, this is out of Yarhouse's book. Um, he says, what most people who are gender dysphoric find in the church is rejection and shame the feeling that there is something fundamentally flawed in them, that the flaw is their fault, this is you know back to willful disobedience, and that if others knew about their gender incongruence, they too would reject them. This is essentially the formula for shame, and that formula will not provide any kind of meaningful uh, structure for identity. Um, <coughs> he goes on to say, he asks, is it any wonder that people will be drawn to this diversity framework, which we'll talk about in a minute, to find identity and value in self-worth. 
I mean, if the church isn't willing to say something scandalous like you, you know, you have a, a lot of worth, <laughs> you are, you, you have worth because you're created in God's image, then children instinctively will go to communities and seek out places and people who will affirm them. Like, no strings attached. You don't have to be anybody. You don't have to meet these expectations. You can just be you. Um, now, as a church, we can't just echo that message because, well, we, we would want to push back at some point um, to your question. Um, but we have to remember that. It's, it's easy to condemn from a distance, um, but I think, I think the cost is, is quite high. And then, uh, so care and caution is, is the fourth that, um, that I, I'm adding here. Um, and it's trying to gain an understanding of gender dysphoria without the caution here is without buying everything we're being told by teens <coughs> and by um, psychiatrists and psychologists. Uh, and, and one point that Yarhouse continually makes in his book, and it's worth repeating again, is that for those um, who are genuinely experiencing some feelings of dysphoria, strong feelings of dysphoria, um, it's, it's not a sign of willful disobedience for, for people who are truly miserable. Now, again, there's, there's that other strand of kids that just want to be rebellious, and they don't care. Um, but for those who are uh, genuinely miserable and have a diagnosis, um, Yarhouse himself says we, we must distinguish between those who bend gender roles for various reasons from those who are doing their best to manage a dysphoria that they wish would just go away. <coughs> so here are some questions. Um, and I'm not sure I have really good answers for all of these, but we have to think through these. What, what should, or how should parents respond to children who are gender dysphoric? Are those who are uh, at least identifying with the, a, a different gender or a non-binary gender or who are expressing or exploring the concept of gender um, neutrality. Um, should parents raise a child according to the child's biological sex? Um, that, that would seem to be the default yes there, um, just, to, just to be clear. Um, but here are other questions that people are asking. Should parents facilitate cross-gender <coughs> identification um, or should they take a, a kind of wait-and-see approach? We'll talk about that shortly. There is a there is a step that can be taken um, to suppress some type of de well, suppress development for a time so that a child can come to grips with what's going on. I don't know if that's an answer either, but if, that, if it's that choice versus hormonal therapy of taking um, hormones to change gender, then um, that, that may be the least invasive, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so... Uh, Here's, here's that three framework, and this is the last set of frameworks I'll give you. This is from Yarhouse, and again, I think it, I, I like this because it reflects the three voices that we're hearing in culture. There may be more, but I think these kind of get at, um, at the big ones. They're the integrity framework, the disability framework, and the diversity framework. Um, he, he identifies in his book the scripts that are specific to each one. In other words, what, what, is, what is a description uh, of what it means to be human? What's the worldview, if you will, associated with three, these three perspectives on gender? Um, I'm going to start at the right first with uh, the diversity framework. Um, 
Yeah. Um, <coughs> bless you. Bless you. Yes. So um, to to, high, to to just well give give a high level a s- statement first. Um, evangelicals Christians tend to be over here. The integrity framework. Those uh, who are challenging or feel that they're afflicted with this incongruity would be over in this uh, right column, and then this middle column are those who are trying to understand what it means, probably with some Christian convictions, to live in a fallen world. Uh, and this word non-moral is major. I'll talk about that in, in a minute. Um, but first, the, the diversity community is, um, this is, this is, these are the messages that you will hear. Um, first one, gender dysphoria reflects a naturally occurring difference among people. So now, granted, you may need the help of medicine to help manage that, but it occurs naturally. Uh, notice there's no moral language associated with any kind of fall or whatever. It's just the world we live in. Um, the second point, one's gender dysphoria or incongruence is a large part of who one is. Notice he says rather than how one is. In other words, it's closely connected with identity. Um, the, the who question is much deeper and much more complicated uh, than the how question, though that's not always a simple question e- either. Um, but, you know, if we walk up to someone and say, hey, how you doing, that's, we can usually, if you're a guy, you can usually answer that with a two-word sentence. Um, you know, I'm good. Um, but if, and, and that's a terrible answer, but, you know, sometimes context, that's perfectly appropriate. If you say, um, if, if someone asks you, who are you? Like, oh man, that's, that's heavy. That's, that's a much deeper question. Um, I, you know, I would hope we wouldn't want to answer that question without some reference to God and Christ and <coughs> sin and salvation, like the big, the big heavy topics. But um, in this diversity framework, uh, it's closely connected with identity. The third point, uh, dysphoria uh, points to a community of others who experience similar phenomena. And again, here is where kids will go and teens to find affirmation um, as they're trying to to make sense of of what they're experiencing. And then fourth, one's gender incongruence is central to one's identity. It is a core feature of one's existence. I've already kind of belabored that point above. so in his work, page 132, he, um, he kind of lays these out. Common script statements in this framework. I was born in the wrong body. This is who I am. Um, those kinds of things. Uh, the integrity framework um, tends to say things like this. Gender dysphoria is primarily a spiritual matter, and it's sinful. Um, fulfillment will only come when you adopt your gender, traditional gender roles corresponding to your biological sex, who created, who God created you to be. Otherwise, if you, if you go against that, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt and pain, and you're sinning. Uh, if you're unable to find fulfillment in traditional gender roles, this uh, is often uh, simplistically dismissed as an expression of willful disobedience, and then any cross-gender behaviors are unacceptable as just contrary to who God has made you to be. Your house goes on to say, you know, these messages ultimately, you know, if you wanted to summarize um, these bullet points into one message, he'd say that message is shame. Um, 
a Christian struggling with gender reported, and I'm quoting, the negative messages from the church did irreparable <coughs> harm to my self-esteem that took most of my life to recover from. So Yarhouse hastens again to point out that the experience of gender dysphoria as a, as a diagnosis is not one that is chosen. And again, uh, to belabor the point, we need to distinguish between gender benders who are making some type of political rebellious statement from those who are doing, uh, again, their best to manage this dysphoria that they wish would abate or go away. Uh, so the, the third framework, um, I don't know if I have bullet points for that, but I'll, I'll get there in a minute. Um, the, the disability framework is, I, it's, I think it's informed by Christian con convictions, and people in this framework would be more likely to see gender dysphoria as the product of living in a fallen world. The, the product of living in a fallen world, um, in the words of Alvin Plantinga, he, he wrote this wonderful book on sin. It's entitled, um, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Um, in other words, it's, it's a non-moral non reality. Um, how you respond to it can be moral or immoral, but it is the product of living in a fallen world and, and an internal recognition that something is not quite right. Um, understanding gender dysphoria as a condition that is not of one's own choosing, but yet something that I have to deal with. And there are good responses and bad responses, right responses and wrong responses. Um, some Christians, however, working in this uh, integrity framework um, may not appreciate the complexities here. Uh, and Yarhouse knows that there would still be a lot of Christians who would be very uneasy with um, palliative care versus like curative care. So the, the, the difference there, um, palliative medicine is focused on improving the quality of someone's life. Uh, medically, so if, if you have a, a, a degenerative disease, a chronic illness, palliative medicine, in, in, in the recognition that there are no cures available, palliative medicine aims at minimizing the negative side effects of your disease or condition. The, the other more aggressive form would be you know, curative forms of medicine, which we're always working on. Research is always moving forward. Um, but when you, when you transfer palliative and curative over to the realm of gender dysphoria, a lot of Christians disagree. In other words, if there's some adult who is afflicted with this, um, but he also recognizes that um, it would be a sin or would be wrong to try to reject God's given body to become uh, morphologically a woman, um, well, are there behaviors and practices that he might adapt in private that help mitigate those feelings? A palliative approach would say, well, maybe there are some things you could do to try to cope and get through life. Um, a curative approach, some Christians would say, nope, you've just got to get more counseling and um, eventually you'll, you'll get over that. Right, you'll, <laughs> these debates have been going on for decades. They parallel almost exactly the Christian um, fights and discussion over how do you handle homosexuality. So there's the, there's the curative group who say if you, if you really pursue counseling hard or if you just love Jesus more, 
um, you, would, you would get victory over this. And there's others who would say, the data is not encouraging here. That doesn't mean you need to succumb to those desires, but um, um, the, uh, you may burden people further by giving them hope that they'll one day defeat it. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's a complicated subject. Those debates are going to be paralleled in our Christian community. So I, I don't, you, know, you have the freedom to stand wherever you want on that. Um, but I, uh, if, you know, the, the moral life is never simple, and it's never as simple as just reading your Bible and studying and praying more. Those are always really good things. But an analogy I've used, I don't want to push this too far, but, um, you know, other, like, besetting sins, we typically, um, you know, like anger, right? Um, we learn how to deal with anger and process it and behave more appropriately, but um, to expect that it should ever go away entirely might be a little bit unrealistic. So um, if, we, if we set out same-sex attraction and we put it under some kind of different category where it can just be completely defeated, I don't know if that's always helpful. Um, in fact, maybe this biblical metaphor of waging a war and a battle that lasts one's entire life is probably more appropriate, but I'll, uh, I need to get off that topic and uh, I'll, we'll move on. Um, I think we're getting somewhere. Um, oh, I, I that. Sorry. Yes. Um, so, um, so this is Yarhouse again. So he looks at these free, three frameworks, and the, his his approach, which I really like, is to say, "Look, let's take the best of these three frameworks. They all have something to contribute." He throws them together in what he calls an integrative framework. Uh, again, as a Christian thinker, which again, this is that's important. And these are helpful messages. And if uh, if some team is just um, neck deep in um, in this and doesn't again is just trying to figure things out, uh, I think a Christian counselor can do a, a lot of good. First one: experiences of gender dysphoria are not part of my reality. Now, now that that's it's not a statement of denial, but it's rather it's a statement of how I am, not who I am. That's what he is. I mean, he s- states it quite. Forcefully, but he's trying to make a point. It is not who you are, it is how you are. You are a child of God. You are created in God's image. You have uh, a tremendous worth in the eyes of God because God has fashioned you in the womb. Um, so it is not part of your deepest reality. Your deepest reality is that you're a child of God. Um, but it does describe how you are. Um, I did not choose to experience gender dysphoria. That's okay. I may never know its cause. Um, That's the kind of world we live in. Um, If you think about it, um, on some profound level, we probably don't have any complete, entire, exhaustive explanation of why any of us do anything ever. I mean, really, why did you do that? I mean, that that question, you could spend the rest of your life trying to dissect that question for each individual act of your life. Now, there are some things we can say, but uh, anyway. Um, I am a complex person, however, and gender dysphoria need not define me. That flows, again, with, with the second message. It, it is how I am, but it's not who I am. Um, I don't even know how I've come to experience it, but I can consider what it means to me today and how I respond to it here on out. Like, you're, we're all responsible beings. We all have... Um, a calling from God, and um, we need to pursue moral behavior. 
There may be many pathways available to me. I will consider the least invasive steps when possible. So this is how he counsels kids and teens and adults uh, as a Christian. So if you want it, if you want to come to me as a therapist and you want a Christian perspective, this is what he out this is what he outlines. Um, again, some Christians will not ever find that acceptable if least invasive <coughs> might require something as radical as hormone therapy and or surgery. I mean, he continues to leave that an open question. He won't um, rule it out, but obviously he would that would that would be a last resort. And it, it's not a win. It's, it's not in any situation a win. Um, so uh, I'm, I don't want to make light of this, but uh, in all honesty, um, I think the first thing as parents, uh, if our kids are presenting this or we have friends who are doing this, is, is to try not, try not to freak out, which I think would be the first, which would be the, like the knee-jerk reaction, like let's nip this in the bud. This is nonsense. Um, you need a good lecture and talking to, and um, we'll get this sorted out. Um, I suspect that the vast majority of kids um, recognize that there is something, you know, this, uh, if they ha- unless they're completely unchurched, they probably recognize that this is probably not part of God's plan. And may- maybe I'm overstating the case there. Um, foster an environment of openness. And by this specifically, I mean to be open to their trans friends. Again, if, if, you, uh, if, you, if you reject them out of hand, um, even though they may not be a good influence, the, the likelihood is that you'll drive them away. It doesn't mean that you can't ask them some probing questions or even express your concerns, um, but expressing concerns is um, favorable to just... Um, drawing a line in the sand, giving an ultimatum. I mean, unless we're talking about eight-year-old kids, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of teenagers now who have given, you know, increasing degrees of autonomy. They're going to see friends at school, etc. I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you're not a bad person if you uh, forbid your teenager to, uh, from going to a sleepover where you know, like, this will not be a good situation. Um, but I think um, being open to their trans friends, here's a radical idea, uh, is why not invite your child's trans friend over? I mean, and, and I'm, I'm being completely serious here because I suspect that they are probably dealing with a tremendous amount of, um, of family issues and maybe you might be the only one who ever um, expresses or displays any kind of unconditional love that like transcends all the stuff they're dealing with. That doesn't mean that you can't ask them questions too, but um, I, have a, I have a difficult time envisioning Jesus doing anything other than saying, why don't you come have dinner, come to my house, or uh, but Jesus would have invited himself over to somebody's house. Um, I suppose he could do that too, right? Um, um, I wouldn't make a practice of that, but I think um, it... it uh, it can only, uh, I think it can only help the situation uh, by, by, in part, diffusing um, some tension and by allowing a conversation to continue. And it gives you space in a private moment, moment to tell your son or daughter, hey, I have big concerns, or maybe even I, I really like this individual, point out some of their positive qualities, with an understanding that many kids, again, this may be a phase thing, or they may be dealing with unimaginable stress, 
and family dysfunction in their own lives, and you, your family is the only picture of normal that they might ever see. Um, so, so listen, uh, listen, pray, ask questions, um, and and not like how could you, but like more open ended questions that let let um, let your kids and their kids' friends kind of talk about their story. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I have, I've been to seminary. I had one class in Christian counseling. So um, it's, it's okay to call a Christian therapist uh, and to, to get advice and even to meet with that therapist without your child to say, I need some guidance here. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're getting, I'm sorry, I need to leave more time for questions. Um, I'll, I'll go through this quickly because um, this will probably be the least helpful. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, uh, these are Christian clinical res- responses. So um, Yar House talks about a Christian counselor is going to challenge these scripts that we, that we talked about earlier. He personally uh, engages in what he calls a combination of narrative and attributional therapy. Um, here, uh, well, you can read the description there. I know very little about this, but it, it's basically... Um, you know, it, it doesn't just give uh, kids a carte blanche like we're just going to affirm whoever you are. In fact, it, it does the opposite. It very gently asks questions that, uh, that help under help the the counselor and the child understand how it is that they come to feel this way. But with guidance from Christian convictions, um, attributional therapy again is uh, something similar. <laughs> it asks questions about how the person makes sense of his or her gender incongruence. Um, and then uh, the, the big question, um, what if these are not successful? Um, your house works in an integrity framework. This is one of, I think, the last comment I'll have from him. Um, this integrity framework gives us pause about the most invasive procedures here, but what does that mean? Um, people I have known who experience gender dysphoria have found it helpful in keeping with the disability framework to think of ways they can learn to manage their dysphoria, different behaviors or dress may not be ideal. Again, this goes to palliative versus curative, but the person uh, identifies the least invasive way to manage their dysphoria so that it does not become too distressing or impairing. Again, I can respect that to a strand of the Christian community that sounds defeatist and kind of accommodating a dark reality. Um, I personally don't see it that way. I think this is this is wise counsel. Um, and anyway, uh, I, we, I need to leave some time for questions. Uh, here are some that I'm thinking about. What does pastoral sensitivity look like, especially in the face of the question you raised? When do you uh, when do you challenge your team, and how you know how do you do that? Which um, it, it should come at some point. Um, is surgery ever an option? Your house kind of gave you his take. Uh, if so, um, what what factors might be involved in that? Uh, and it just, it, I can't envision any scenario. <coughs> well, I can, but um, it, it seems to be deeply disruptive. Um, any act we do as an individual ripples out to those around us. Um, how do we interpret that uh, theologically? How should the church respond to those who have already transitioned? And, and maybe that's the leading up question to the last week. Um, uh, this is the last thing uh, out of Yarhouse's book, or it's near the end. Um, he uh, chronicles the case of Sarah, who transitioned. 
um, from a male to a female and has uh, regretted it but now lives as Sarah. And um, Sarah says, I may have sinned in the decisions I made. I'm honestly not sure that I did the right thing at the time. I felt excruciating distress. I thought I would take my life. I can't imagine going back. So she's living as a Christian and she asks, what would you have me to do? And so Yarhaus concludes this chapter rhetorically with this question, is there a Christian community that is willing to stand next to her in these impossible circumstances? Which is a question for us as a church, um, and I think he's, again, rightly reacting against what uh, he sees a, a large portion of the Christian community largely giving messages of judgment and, and shame. Um, that's all I have. Um, I'm happy to take questions, and um, we'll stay as long as I'm allowed to, I guess. We go to 10.30 or 10.40. Oh, really? I, didn't, I had no idea. I thought it was over by 10. Okay, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, need to, I need to go get some water. There's water That's right yours. here. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, so go ahead, I guess. Yes. Oh, that, yeah, I, absolutely. I should have done that. It's very long. My apologies. It's a long story. I told you. It's. Oh, my. Wow. She started further over. I did. Um, okay, it's uh, Urbana Theological Seminary, one word. And it's .org, and it's T-D-A-L-Y. Our, uh, our website was hacked last summer, and um, unless we want to pay some money to, anyway, I think. Um, Kay has the entire story on that. By the way, Kay, thank you. She's been instrumental in helping our website recover and come back to life, and... I'm sorry to put you, I'm sorry to embarrass you, but it was, she's uh, amazing. So um, this is why we have a much longer new email address. That was a great question. Thank you. That's, <laughs> I am, I am very confident in my answer. Uh, yeah, Susan. I, uh, first off, congratulations on your um, run yesterday. Oh, Thank you, thank you, thanks. Um, and second, um, one of the things that, um, I mean, my kids are grown, and so I, you know, I, um, I, I don't really, dealing with a teenage mom, that, that's not something I deal with on a daily basis, or really ever, but um, one thing that I do deal with is like coworkers and people I come in contact with, and they're, um, I think you alluded to it earlier, almost a celebration yes. of, of this, and they're, Mindset that anybody that disagrees is hostile towards them, mm -hmm. um, and I deal with this in the workplace. So how do how do we go about handling that in a way that doesn't come doesn't yep. start a debate, yep. doesn't get you know doesn't feel anger, um, yep. but yet we're still stay true to what we believe. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I I'd, I'd say very very carefully. Uh, and it, it depends. It depends on how well you know that coworker, right? I mean, there are some coworkers you just tolerate. Uh, because you recognize that if you if you try to do any type of 
if, if, you, if you challenge, um, it's probably going to go south quickly and uh, probably do more damage than good. Um, but then there are others uh, who um, I think maybe my approach is always very indirect. And uh, I might just say, well, I've read some studies that you know people are, are miserable on both sides of the equation of the, of the surgery issue and that suicide attempts are almost equally high on both sides and it doesn't, I wonder if that's always the solution or maybe just subtle, subtle kind of, um, I don't I want to say challenges, but I don't even want to say rebuttals, but you are kind of gently just saying, and, and you kind of deflect it to, well, I've read these reports that maybe things are a little bit more complicated than we seem. Um, you know, if you talk to a Christian apologist, they're liable to have like more like more one-liners ready, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's always the best way to go. Um, and I'm not against apologetics. I mean, I teach a class in apologetics, but I, I, I am always suspicious of trying to win those kind of culture war battles by saying, "Well, here, here, X, Y, and Z." If someone's asking you, then you, I think, yeah, great. Like, oh, I'll give you lots of uh, thoughts or evidence. But if someone is kind of throwing something out there flippantly or maybe uninformed at the very least you could maybe start to challenge that narrative but indirectly un unless you have a relationship where you know them well enough where you could say look I'm, I'm not sure this is uh, I think there's a lot more going on and I, I don't think um, I don't think we should just um, throw male and female out the window I don't think it's helpful but, uh, you, you've got to be careful and um, cautious that goes back to, I wasn't trying to like reflect my talk, but th those two words repeatedly come up, and um, it depends on personalities, too. So some, some Christians are way more vocal and more comfortable, and you know, those who have that kind of prophetic imagination and gifts, and they're happy to, to, um, to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness that often causes consternation. There's a role for that. I'm not sure in a workplace environment that would be. Other Christians are, are uh, they don't have those kinds of gifts, and they're more, um, well, they're, they may be introverts. Um, so it just, it, it depends on your personality, depends on the relationship. But that would be my personal approach, because I, again, I far prefer the indirect approach. And, it, and more often than not, I might just not, not say anything and so let it okay go. I think I'm sticking my head in the sand and just kind of running away. Sure, but well, you, I would reframe that as um, if I don't fight this battle now, I may be able to have a deeper conversation later. But if I fight this battle now, then I, I, may, I may burn some bridges here and this person won't want to have anything to do with me. Um, that's a great question. Carl? So how is that interesting that the, the pursuit of relationship, aside from the behavior, is fully extended? truth matters you can take at a further yep. point down the road. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. I just think, um, me and my wife have been trying to figure out you know, how are we going to be the, the uh, cool parents out of school, you know, and, and mm -hmm. trying to have you know, the, the Cleaver family. Mm -hmm. yeah, like, uh, if the 50s would ever you know, yeah. give that out, <laughs> you'll never be the cool parent. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but, but um, in some, you know, for affording relationship and yeah, I don't know if you call it exactly a harbor or a safe harbor, but something that at least says, hey, 
we want to reflect how loving that our yeah. Lord is. And we have, we have standards that we live by. Sure. But we're going to be open with conversation and, yeah. um, and again, winsome towards the relationship, but also our, our, our God's order and something that looks like. Well, I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to compete if you want to be that kind of family. Like you're, you're right. It's you'll never be a cool parent, but um, but you can be the house that neighborhood kids want to be, or want to hang out with, and it usually involves simple things. But it also is costly for the family. But like an open refrigerator and pantry, um, uh, a trampoline, like a basketball hoop, all that kind of stuff. And, and there are moments when you just, you just say, like, why can't you want that house to be somewhere else? Especially on a Sunday afternoon. It's like, oh, good grief. If I hear the ball hit the side of the house one more time. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's how you cultivate. Uh, I think that's, that's how you can, like, model for your kids. But um, it, it's also a way, um, you know, our, our kids have friends who I think... Um, Need need some of that, and so we have them come over. Yeah. And that's not just purely the transgender. <clears throat> no, one thing. Among no. Them. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Well, um, you know, I guess one of the things that I I struggle with, especially as an educator, and of course, to me, there is big that part of the, there's an agenda going on yep. that's being actively mm-hmm. pushed, and as an educator in public education. Yep. You know, we get all sorts of things coming out, including here's a sign hanging up in your classroom to yep. say that you're supportive and, yep. and helpful yep. and all that, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. Yep. Now, luckily in the district I'm at, the district does leave it to teacher's choice whether they want to do that. Okay. But there's still that active agenda, and I totally get the being supportive and trying to listen and, and hear teens, whether yep. junior high or, or mm-hmm. high school level and even college mm-hmm. but how do we do that in a way where we go so far but yet still let them, <coughs> those individuals know that, hey, we're here for you, uh, we understand, but on the same token, morally, yep. we're opposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a yep. challenging thing to be able to do. Yep. No, it's, it's always a challenge, and I... What I try to remember, because I, I encountered these signs when we enrolled our daughter at Central this past August, right? I'm like, oh, I didn't, uh, like, I think like a rainbow sign, like this is a safe place or you are, you know, you can come here. I can't remember what the message was. Um, personally, what what I would do, what I try to keep in mind is that I think a lot of these directives are coming from a place where uh, there is a lot of bullying and a lot of a lot of harmful stuff going on that afflict our kids. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it about the homosexuality or gender thing at all. I would try to reframe it in terms of, again, this person is made in God's image and is stressed out. Do I want to be a safe place for them, even if I just listen? Um, and if, if the opportunity comes up even to say, look, I'm not even say, look, I, as a Christian, I don't, I don't even fully agree with all of this, but I want... I also don't want you to suffer. Uh, I, I wouldn't make it about the gay thing. I don't know if you could. I don't know if you feel comfortable putting a sign up. But uh, well, I mean that's kind of you know in general over the years. I want my classroom, of course, to be supportive of anybody yep. that comes in there, regardless of 
yep. any of the other uh, things that they might have going on. Mm. But I almost feel like it is pushed in. Don't yep. make it open mm -hmm. and clear that we're supportive of this, then yep. we're obviously hostile. Yeah, and that's not fair. I yep. see this is coming more mm -hmm. not from teenagers mm. or from middle mm -hmm. schoolers, but either adult teachers or other adult teachers who want to actively set up these groups in the school system mm -hmm. or even administrators yep. from higher up from there. So. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you need to be careful, right? But I would, I would feel the freedom to push back with an administrator. And I don't know if I'd put it in an email, but, I would, but I'd feel comfortable enough saying, look, I, will, um, I am against anybody being bullied for any reason, and I want, I want students to feel safe here. So I may not agree with homosexuality, like pursuing that lifestyle or behavior, but I also will be an advocate for any kid who's being discriminated against. And that might just blow their minds. But I wouldn't put it in an email. I would just, I would state it verbally. And I mean, just, you know, um, carefully, and you have to discern that, make your stand and just, and, and, and try, try your best to smash this, this idiotic, simplistic narrative that if you're against something, you are afraid of it and you hate it. But that's that's where we have um, we have let ourselves be painted into this really simplistic culture war, where it's it, either you're for us or you're against us, and that it doesn't. Life is more complicated than that. But you, you got to be really strategic uh, and and winsome. And if you um, if you want to voice your opposition, I think you should. But again, like very carefully. I just I've just learned never to put anything important in an email. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, well, and then from the parent side, you know, having now kids at all different age levels and four of them, and I speak from truth about that never being a cool parent. <laughs> the, uh, especially when you, I'm not sure how old your kids are, but once your daughter hits teenagers, just forget about it. Yep, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, and as we started into middle school, uh, kids started to have issues, especially either with, you know, you start to get into the um, um, anorexia issues, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. cutting was yep. really, really big, uh, yep. you know, starting 10 years. I don't know how, whether it's still it's a big still, problem. It is. And it's kind of leading into all of these other things. One particular student that was very involved with that, that had a lot of issues there, has now kind of transgendered and, and mm -hmm. switched, um, and is openly celebrated in, mm -hmm. in the school district that that particular student mm -hmm. is in because of that. Um, and that, as a parent, it's just very difficult when you kind of see all of these things, knowing that my wife and I have approached a cautious attitude of with our mm -hmm. kids, especially mm -hmm. with their friends. Yep. And because sure. we realize as teenagers, they're being more in, heavily yep. influenced by them. Mm -hmm. We're just hoping we provided them with a strong enough foundation yep. when they were younger. Uh, but you still want to kind of fight that cultural war, especially when yep. you see it predominantly. <coughs> we were watching a mm -hmm. TV show that my eight-year-old loves mm -hmm. the other day, and it's a kid's show, and I don't remember what it's titled or which one, but it comes in with a very openly... Uh, character that's just very openly feminine mm -hmm. and kind of overdone yep. with the way it's patrolled on the TV. Yep. Oh yeah. Now my parents and my grandparents would have instantly said, "Shut that off! You're mm -hmm. not watching that garbage." Mm -hmm. um, yeah, same here. 
Yeah. You know, yep. today's parents, mm -hmm. now I'm probably biased here as an educator seeing a lot of the negative things. To me, today a lot of parents, whether it's the TV, video games, or social media, aren't really paying attention to what their kids <laughs> aren't are Aren't fully engaged, yeah. Uh, yep. So you're going to see it as adults helping other kids. So know that that part of the yep. culture is there. Yep. How can we transition as Christians to mm. continue to face this onslaught of mm -hmm. the, the blatant kind of yep. adding this into everything culturally? Yeah, um, yeah, it's, a, it's another, it's a massive question you ask, and I think you're right, and I think it's even, I think it's more profound, profound and pervasive now because we have YouTube where anybody's views can be, and, and we're seeing, you know, kids being strongly influenced by this, and I think there's multiple factors to, in reality, I think there are some kids who are genuinely feeling dysphoria, and they get affirmed by a community that maybe not even... Uh, entirely cares so much about their individual case, but sees that as a sees them as a useful political tool for the agenda. So there's all these things going on. Um, the, the 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 culture question is huge. Uh, I I teach an entire class on Christianity and contemporary <laughs> culture, and it uh, part of that class is like how do we how do we respond to culture? Do we try to shape it? Do we try to change it? Is that even possible? Um, do we? Uh, are there other approaches? Uh, and uh, over the years, I've become. I mean, I, I I resonate with everything you're saying, and I find it personally irritating. But on another level, I I'm increasingly suspicious of our attempts to try to shape culture. That that doesn't mean I don't want politicians to run for office who are Christians. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have Christians in places of influence. Yeah, absolutely. I just have strongly diminished expectations that um, that that's the right battle for us to be fighting. And so I I try to think on the individual level, like who are the kids that I can influence. Um, and that doesn't mean, say, for instance, you don't go online and voice your opposition to this latest bill that um, wants to introduce um, history with a, a deliberate strand of homosexual, transgendered contributions, right? I mean, I know that's, and a lot of Christians are up in arms and um, really, really upset by that. I think it's I think it's a horrible bill. I think it's deeply misguided. I can understand why it's being put forward to try to reduce uh, kind of uh, bullying and hostility. I don't. I don't think it's. In, I don't think it's enforceable. They've already stripped out the money question, so it, it can't be tied to funding. But I find that issue irritating. Publicly, I say, go ahead and register your opposition. Just say, I don't think this is a well-written bill, uh, etc. Um, I don't know if it'll come to fruition. But so I'm not calling for no cultural engagement. I'm just deeply suspicious of the whole. Uh, the whole desire to try to reshape culture. I mean, it can happen indirectly, but I am more of the approach that if the church becomes the church, then um, there, there will be some residual effect in the surrounding culture. And, and let that be a byproduct of first trying to be disciples and to, to be a, a place where we, um, I like how Stanley Hauerwas puts it, the church becomes a counter-narrative to, re to first and foremost remind the world that it is the world, which 
basically is to remind them that there is another way to live life that uh, is uh, more promising for fruit, uh, flourishing and growth and transformation. Um, again, while encouraging, like from the pulpit, of course, if you have political ambitions and you're gifted in that area, and if God has called you to that realm, then you'd be disobeying God if you didn't go run for public office, prepared for all of the complexities of that world. And you should do it, and you should do it for God's glory. And if culture gets shaped and changed for the better, great. Um, so I'm, I'm all for influence at, at a local level where each of us has, we all have our little kingdoms that participate in God's bigger kingdom and I'm also reminded too, I'm not rambling, I'm all over the place, but the kingdom and the church are not the same thing, right? And so God's kingdom is God's, God's activity in and through the world, whether or not the church is doing its job, whether or not Christians are doing their jobs. So, uh, and that's my, like, uh, theological warrant for saying we, I think we should back off the culture war model because all we do is... Um, we, again, we lose the ability to talk to people, and, um, and, and if we want to take God's sovereignty seriously, you know, there is a kingdom that this world is, is safe for us to be in, which is, um, you know, if you read enough of these Christian websites, you get precisely the opposite, that this world is not safe, and you need to take action now, and you need to go protest this, and you need to uh, oppose this. And these guys are all liberals, and they're not very smart. And I mean, there's this, there's a steady, there's this steady diet of negativity and name calling, like things that I wouldn't, things that I would call my kids out on, like immediately. Um, we as a Christian community let a lot of these Christian family groups get by with that all the time because they're liberals, so they they have it coming. They can, we can talk down about them. Um, now we won't ever have a cup of coffee with them because we've just, we've just. Um, sorry, this is a really sensitive area for me. I really, <laughs> really gets me angry. So, um, well, I, I read the bill, right? I read the bill about the textbook, and I had several Christians send me the information. I was thankful for that, but I have to confess, I was after reading it, I was madder about how the Christians responded than I was about the actual bill itself. And at some point, I just wanted to throw my arms up in the air and say, so what? You have your textbook. We have Christ, right? I don't... Anyway, sorry. That's my little sermon, and I'm done. Well, can I have coffee with you? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, go, go ahead, and then I can stick around. Uh, yes, yes. On a completely different topic, um, you've identified true gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Somebody is truly, truly agonized in their life because they're biologically one thing and they're internally believe they're something else. So let's take Sarah as an example. This yes. is obviously a woman that went through that, that I presume as a mature adult decided to yeah. get reassignment surgery yep. and she's done it. Yes. She's still in church. She still yep. believes she's a Christian. Yep. From a theological point of view, yep. I think this is fairly important. Yes. Does the church still believe that Sarah is a saved person? Yeah, I, I would. I would hope so. Um, if 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 Christ died for the sins of the world and she believes that, I mean, she could cut her body up and mutilate it any way, shape, or form possible. I don't. Um, 
I don't see why not. Um, now, now some, some people might say otherwise, but I don't want to add stuff to the gospel. I mean, the reality is, I mean, we could ask of King David, was he uh, a loyal follower of God for, like, spying out this woman and having adultery with her and then, oh, engaging in systematic homicide under the office of king? Is he still, is he still worthy of, you know, reading and studying? Was he not still called by God. So I say unequivocally, yes, it's possible. Now, some people might disagree. The other thing I would say is that I really have no way of knowing for sure. All I can do is ask what they believe. I mean, based on the best, yes. nobody knows who's saved yeah. and who isn't. I yeah. mean, it's up to God. Yeah. But based on the best study that we can do sure. from the scripture, yeah. I, I think that's one of the things we need to understand about these people is do we believe they're still Christians? Yeah. And, uh, you know, or That's a fair question. I yeah I I uh, I don't know anything about Sarah. I don't know if she became a Christian later or not. But it 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 would not remotely surprise me uh, that I mean that there are people who I say if you ask them I've transitioned and they say I go to church. Uh, if uh, and if you ask them what they believe about Christ and the gospel, they'd say, Well, I believe is Jesus is the Son of God. They could recite the Apostle to the Nicene Creed. I would have no reason to disbelieve them. I, I, would, I would like to think that the gospel would shape us uh, more perhaps than it does. But um, th- there's the reality of Christ, and then there's the rest of life, which, which is a perpetual shaping process. And if, if, if the Bible says anything, it gives us a laundry list of how God has graciously worked through exceedingly fallen, messed up, neurotic people, just like us. So I have no reason to doubt that someone who's had this surgery, who claims they were a Christian beforehand, would be... Uh, I have no reason to doubt that. Um, anyway, Carl, and then... I'm just going to add to the nature of that question. It's very difficult, right? Um, our walk is exactly that, our walk. It, it, always this direction... Sometimes where it's opposite sides back, but if you you know truly hear this person say, "Gosh, you know, what would you have me do?" Mm-hmm. That's a position of at least relative humility. Yeah, and, and request yeah. for help. Yeah, um, to a Christian leader, to pastor, to their mm-hmm. counselor. And so you know, much like what was said, you know, Jesus saves us where we're at. Doesn't expect us to brush everything off. So with that, um, every one of us has our hurts and habits and hang-ups. A community, a, a, a community willing to understand where people are at, and acknowledging that uh, when when my heart posture uh, is still at least entertaining going mm. forward, God is still doing His work. He, he is still bringing us closer to Him. So. Well, it doesn't exactly feel right. You know, some of us have sins that are more... Yeah, more visible or, yeah. Uh, Jesus loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. It's kind of, um, I think that's a way of summarizing it. So I would expect to see, you know, uh, a work towards sanctification. I don't, you know, I don't know if, if Sarah were convicted enough to transition back. I wouldn't put pressure on Sarah to do that, but I would say, well... That's a step toward trying to reaffirm what uh, what God has intended, and I, I don't want to dismiss too the realities of um, depending on your understanding of like, the Lord's Supper, etc. There can be a there can be a healing if you're open to like say some form of grace being mediated through. I know that may be a tricky subject in some churches, but um, 
Yeah, it, it, we'll get just one second. In an article um, that I wrote on this in Medical Journal, I reflected a little bit on the Lord's Supper as kind of a restorative healing discipline in the church that might help someone uh, maybe move toward a, a place of wholeness where, where the words, I think I put it, where the words of Jesus, this is my broken body, help, be, help, help the soul engage, uh, uh, this is my body broken for you, helps challenge the thoughts, this is my broken body. Anyway, I've messed that whole line up. Um, <laughs> go, go ahead, yes. And I think with us, as we grapple with questions of um, people who are struggling with gender dysphoria and, and their, their faith, and whether or not who, who a Christian is, the importance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in those who are believers, to, and the power of the Holy Spirit to convict, um, yep. and, to work, yep. and to, to work within within a believer. And so as we as a community love people, also acknowledging that, that the Holy Spirit is a powerful part of the Trinity that does work within mm-hmm. us to convict, but also to bring healing. No, that's, yeah, you're absolutely, and thank you for bringing that up, because I, uh, it's, it's a point of, it, it should be a point of emphasis that um, if you look at, if you want to do a doctrine of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, there's one theme, there, there's several themes, but one of them is this notion of conviction. Uh, sometimes we can convict with our own words, but sometimes our love can be more unsettling and a, uh, an avenue for the Spirit to convict without any any word of opposition being spoken, although again, I'm not, I'm not against, at some point there has to be a challenge or at least a, a loving way of saying, I, I don't agree with this. I, I don't agree with you on this issue, but I, um, I still want to be a supporter of you know, a safe learning community, etc. If you ever have anything um, that you, know, you need to come talk with me about, my, my door is always open. Um, you know, rainbow flag or not, whatever, right? Just my door is open. Um, I'll st- it's it's 10, almost 10.30. I will stick around for more questions so you can go get coffee and mingle and chat. Um, thanks for your attention. I don't know what next week is, looks like. I don't even know what... Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. So um, I'll have to think about that or if you have any suggestions afterwards. It can be more of this or we could talk about culture, but I don't know. I might get too worked up. So. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Please feel free. I don't want to bring these home, so if you want a, 